Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. The reading is taken from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, will, sorry, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Great, let me pray for Joe. She comes to preach to us. Pray for us as we hear God's word. Father God, thank you for the, the gift of your words to us. Thank you that your word is alive today. And that you have a purpose today for every one of the words that's to come out of Joe's mouth to us. I pray that you would put fire on these words. Father, would you make us ready to hear and to obey? And we pray just grace and peace on this time. Let your kingdom advance in us, in this church family and across this city. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Johnny. Good, good morning, everyone. Ah, oh, wonderful. Well, we've um, seen a, a lot of some family history made this morning in two of our families in this church. I'll tell you a bit about my family history this morning. In 1955, two quite significant things happened in, my, in the life of my family. 1955, I don't know if you can picture the year, I certainly can't, but you might be able to. 1955, my first thing, my, my dad was born. That's quite significant, that's important in my family history. Second thing that happened, that we're focusing more on this morning, is that my grandparents on my mum's side got married. 1955, they got married. They, they met in Liverpool. My granddad was in the RAF, um, stationed in the RAF after the war in Liverpool. And um, he met my grandma. They went on dates to Penny Lane, you know, the classic Penny Lane. Um, they, raised, they got married in Liverpool, moved to Wigan, raised a family in Wigan. Um, 50 years they lived in the same house. Some of you might be able to tell that same tale. I moved around a lot as a kid, so I can't even imagine staying in a house longer than 20 years, never mind 50. But they were in that same house for 50 years. They were married for almost 60 years. My grandparents, when I think about them, they were like the epitome of the solid, dependable, unchanging force in my life. Every time I went, the house was exactly the same as when I'd left it. Everything was the same. They went to the same social club on a Saturday night. 
They watched every soap available to them on the television. Corrie was on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 7.30 on the dark. My grandma would be there. The biscuit tin was always full. Figgy biscuits were my favorite. The occasional penguin, if you were lucky. They were always there. They were the solid foundation. That was my, I really valued that as I grew up. They were there for everyone on their close. They were that kind of family that just pulled around and were always present. That was until they weren't, until my grandma got poorly and she got dementia. And um, things started to change pretty fast for them. Their world as they knew it, their stable home, our stable home, started to cave in around them. And I, I honestly can't fully imagine what it must have been like after spending 60 years with someone to watch them deteriorate so fast, to watch them go through that level of pain and suffering, to go through it with them. I can't, I can't really imagine what that must have been like for my granddad, but his, waver, his, fav, his devotion didn't waver. He didn't waver in his love for my grandma. In fact, when I was speaking to my mum about this, she said, you know, he just didn't question it, Joe, at the end. He didn't, it wasn't even a question on his mind. His love started to really cost him something at the end, but it didn't, he didn't question it. it just, he just did it. That's what you do when you really love someone. And when I was thinking this week about this theme on my heart for today, this, the cost of love, I just couldn't help but think about them. The cost of love that, that goes to the point of death with someone, the deepest depths of suffering. 60 years of marriage, three kids, countless grandkids and grandchildren. They had this incredible legacy. But to end it in what looks like a defeat, it's quite hard to think about. He grieved her until his own death in the pandemic. And I look at it and think, on, in an earthly lens, what? why did it have to end like that? Maybe it was a defeat. Maybe it wasn't. We're going to return to their story a bit later on. But I want to talk about a different place today, the kind of costly love that existed in a different space and time. This was our friends, I'm going to affectionately call them throughout this preach, the Smyrnans. Now, that's not a real word, but just give me grace, because the, it just works. It works to call them the Smyrnans, but these are the, this is the church in Smyrna. Now, where is Smyrna? I'm going to transport you to the map here. You might be able to spot a little sort of black circle on the sort of coast of Tur- what is now modern-day Turkey. It is now called Izmir. Smyrna is now in modern-day Turkey called Izmir. It's the third largest city currently in um, Turkey, so it's still an incredibly important place. It um, was then too. It was, it was the second biggest um, city in Asia Minor. And um, it was significant partly because of its geographical location. It was on, that port, on the port, so it had lots of um, busy traffic to and fro in. It was a beautiful city. It, pr- it prided, itself, prided itself in its beauty and its, its education and all the things that would come out and in from Smyrna, they were proud of. And they had this sort of um, underlying um, sort of competition with Ephesus that we learned about last week from um, Amy. They wanted to be the first in all things. They wanted to be the first city in Asia Minor. And, and in some ways, we read t- today that they were. They managed it in some senses because where Ephesus, as Amy was talking to us about last week, although they, were, they had lots of fervor and vigor as a church, Ephesus failed in one key area. They'd lost sight of their first love. Their devotion to Jesus had wavered. 
That was Ephesus. This is Smyrna. Smyrna is a very different story. Where Ephesus had failed, Smyrna had not. They had stayed faithful in devotion to Jesus, to the point of suffering and persecution, to the point of death. They were suffering precisely because they loved Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves when we're reading this passage today. Jesus was speaking to them in the midst of that suffering. We learn a bit more about their kind of way of being from this text itself, which I honestly think, reading Revelation, it's like a sort of reading a spy manual, decoding what um, Jesus is, is saying to these, these, these churches, and he speaks very specifically. Even in this opening line, we read in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. You know, I was saying that Smyrna loved the idea of being the first. They, they, even ha- they loved it so much, they stamped it on their coins. They stamped, um, let me get it here. It said, um, first in the city of Asia in size and beauty. They actually weren't, but they so longed to be the first that Jesus knew this about them. You see, he, he knew it so much that he thought, I know what they need to hear. I know what matters to them. It matters to them that I am first. It matters to them that they are first. So I'm going to even use that language as they, as, he, as they open this letter. They read this. And even more than that, this bit about um, Jesus coming back from the dead, although it's obviously a cornerstone of our faith, he's also trying to say something through that. Because Smyrna, being a port town, being on the, on the sea, it was um, very vulnerable to invasion. And um, it was often leveled to the ground. It also experienced significant earthquakes. So it was the kind of city that kind of needed to resurrect itself again and again and again. In fact, they had this motto in Smyrna, we once were dead, but we, were now, we are now alive. That was their motto in Smyrna. Jesus is subliminally trying to speak to them, saying, I know you. I know you, Smyrnans. I know you. This is true about me. This is true about me, Jesus. It's also true about you. And I know you care about these things. He wants this, this opening to the letter to be deeply personal. He wants them to know that he sees them. And yet there is this very pressing reality. Pressing into the church of Smyrna, this suffering, this persecution. We read about it in the text. There's persecution from the Roman side, Smyrna as a city was a city devoted to Rome. That's the only way you really sort of escalated, you really elevated, probably is the right word, elevated in Roman culture was if you served Rome. So Smyrna being the second city in Asia, the second most important city in Asia Minor, meant that they had served Rome with real allegiance. And you can guarantee that if a city served Rome very well, it didn't serve Jesus very well. It would not be easy to serve Jesus in a city that was so oriented towards Rome. So we already know that they're going to be suffering persecution from Rome. But then we have this strange bit in the text where we hear about a synagogue of Satan and and this sort of Jewish, um, it almost sounds like an anti-Semitic statement going on here. What is that about? Well, it isn't an anti-Semitic statement, to be clear. Jesus is referring here to a very specific Jewish sect that existed in Smyrna at the time that really were, well, for all intents and purposes, dobbing the Christians in. 
They, um, there was a sort of a, a relationship between the Jews and Rome at the time that sort of kept this vague sense of order and harmony between these two opposing forces, really. And the Jews knew they had to keep the Romans on side. They knew that if, um, if, they became into, if they came into Rome's bad books, that they might have certain privileges that they were given taken away. So, for example, Jewish people didn't have to worship Caesar. They were excluded, exempt from a military service. And they knew, this sect of Jews, they knew that that could be taken away at the whim of the Romans. So, if if they could stay on the right side of the Romans, that would be a good thing, right? Well, the, the Jews in Smyrna thought it would be a good thing. So they would tell, basically, they would tell the, Ro- the Romans about the Christians that weren't worshipping Caesar. They would dub them in. And this is the group that Jesus is referring to here. So we've got opposition from Rome and opposition from this Jewish sect that were making it very, very difficult for Christians to worship Jesus at this point in history. Very, very difficult. So difficult that Jesus wrote, well, he didn't write, John wrote it. Jesus spoke these words to these Christians under incredible pressure. We read, I know your afflictions. Verse 9, I know your afflictions. The word affliction, though, we've used it. That's how we translate the Greek word. Now, I'm going to get you to say this with me because it's very hard to say without spitting. You ready? Flipsis. 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 I bet you're glad you're not very close to me. I'm going to say it a lot. Flipsis is the Greek word that we translate as affliction, But as with many Greek words, they don't naturally exactly translate into a word that we can understand. And um, it's actually, this word actually refers to, it's almost like a a pressure, a crushing pressure. So it's a very strong word. Flipsis means crushing pressure. The theologian John Barclay says that to first century readers, this word, flipsis, would evoke a picture of someone being tortured to death by a great boulder laid upon him. Being tortured to death by a great boulder being laid on him. Can you see why I know your afflictions perhaps doesn't convey that same strength? That's the kind of crushing pressure that Jesus is acknowledging in speaking to the Smyrnans. This isn't just kind of a hard times kind of pressure. It's not just, oh, these are things we experience in the natural sort of fallen world type challenges. This is incredible pressure that only Jesus knew about. He's saying, I know your crushing pressure. I see it. I see what you're going through. I know more than anyone what it's like to have the physical weight of the world pressing on my shoulders. And you'd hope that it would be followed with this but it's going to get better. Good things around the corner. Don't worry. The pressure is going to lift. That's what we'd hope to hear, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be? But we know he doesn't follow it with that. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he lift the pressure? He clearly loves them, and he clearly wants them to know that, and yet it's not lifting. Well, he can't. 
Because it's precisely because of their devotion, their allegiance to Jesus that they're experiencing this level of pressure. His presence and his rule and reign in their lives is the reason the pressure comes. Love costs you everything. It costs the Smyrnans everything in this case. You can't separate out love and cost. We really want to do that. You know, Johnny spoke about the myth of secularism, the myth of progress. And we love this idea of separating out love and cost. We've got this idea that we should, we should be entitled to this sort of heavenly, sort of hedonistic existence without it costing us anything. That's the lie we've been sold. You know, we're seeing this at the moment. We're feeling this at the moment. We want to believe that the war in Ukraine will end, and yet, honestly, it's hard to pay our bills right now. It's costing us something. It's costing us something to believe that idealism that fascism might end. It's costing us something. And we want to believe that we can have these ideals in our society without it costing us something. Martin Luther King, he had an idealism, didn't he? He had, the, he had the most idealistic picture of what he wanted to see in racial equality. He had an idealism. But the, the difference with Martin Luther King is he knew it was going to cost him his life. He knew it. So it's not the idealism that is wrong. It's not the heavenly perspective It's the fact that we have divorced that from cost. The Smyrnans knew what the two coming together would look like. Because the way of Jesus is not one of divorcing those two things. Jesus says, come and die, and that's where you'll find life. Come and die, that's where you'll find life. Daryl Johnson talks about flipsis as the kind of pressure referring to the pressure of um, experienced as the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. The kingdom of God coming up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. See, as we follow Jesus, we should start to notice a widening gap between the values of our secular culture and the values of the kingdom of God. That gap should be there. Values of how you spend your money, your body, your speech. We should notice a difference. You might find yourself ostracized at work because you won't join in with the office gossip. You might find yourself at odds with your partner because you value your body differently. This widening gap can creep into all areas, and it should creep into all areas of our life. The temptation is to want to close it. We so badly want to close it. We want to be like everyone else. We don't want it to affect our lives. We don't want it to cost us anything to follow Jesus. But we have to resist that urge because it's a slow creep, isn't it? If you're anything like me, it's a slow creep of of where that gap starts to close. And 
you know, we start to compromise in a certain area and it, it begins to look quite attractive to sort of compartmentalize your life. Oh, Jesus can be Lord of that thing. I'll have allegiance to Jesus in that area, but I know what I think about that. Thank you very much. Or it's easier to just go along with that way of doing things. And before we know it, we're living a double life. We might sing the songs on a Sunday, but in work or in the clubs or with your kids, whatever it might be, it's looking pretty different. There might even be areas now where the Holy Spirit's just bringing to mind that gap or lack of. Jerry Sitzer says that we will not all have to die for our faith, but we all will face moments in our life when we have to choose between Christ and something else that vies for our ultimate allegiance. 1 of the famous saints of Smyrna was Bishop Polycarp. And he he existed about um probably about half a century after this letter was written. And he is a famous Christian martyr, one of the earliest martyrs of the faith. And one of the criticism, the, the, the sort of, uh, what do you call it, the, I guess the, the claim that Rome had against Polycarp as he was tried in a, well, as much as you can call it a trial when you're in, the, in a sort of an arena being um, heckled and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that they criticized him for and said, we've got to kill him because he, well, he, he calls us to question our pluralism as a Roman society. Roman society was very pluralist, pluralistic, maybe in a, a different sort of way that we experience now. But the way that Polycarp lives his life, Bishop Polycarp is a threat to us because he says that Jesus is the only Lord. And that's a threat to a pluralistic society that says anything can be Lord, whatever's convenient can be Lord. His legacy was one of allegiance to Jesus, and he died for it. He did. He was executed as a result of that um, criticism on his life. Love cost him everything. The church in Smyrna was counting that cost and continued to count it throughout the generations, even to this day. But this letter is Jesus saying, count the cost, but it's also him saying, I'm with you in it. How do we cope with this kind of pressure? If we're going to live lives that, that are truly in, in allegiance to the lordship of Jesus, it is going to cost us something, but how, how do we even live in that? How did the church of Smyrna cope with this? Well, Jesus had two things to say in this passage. He has a lot of things to say about living with pressure. But in this passage, he says two things. Do not fear and be faithful. Do not fear and be faithful. The two things really belong together, though. They're not two separate things, because actually, if you think about it, faith is an antidote to fear. The things that we are afraid of usually come out of a lack of faith or a misplaced faith in something else, whether that's family or money or whatever else. 
So faith is an antidote to fear. It's, it's no surprise then, is it, that in, a, in our culture that is less and less faith-filled, we're more and more fear-filled, anxiety-filled. What does the Bible say about faith? How do we have faith? If faith is the thing that's going to help us not be afraid in these moments, how do we, what does the Bible say about it? What is faith? Well, this says a lot, but I'm going to jump to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence about what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So if afraid, be not afraid is, means full of faith. To be full of faith, what does that mean? Well, according to Hebrews, it's to hedge all our bets, all of our bets, to hedge all of them on this particular revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, the one who is making all things new because he was made new. He was raised to life. That's what Hebrews is saying. Hedge all your bets on him, this revelation of Jesus. In these moments... The thlipsis moments, the crushing pressure moments. Jesus is wanting to remind this church in Smyrna and this church in Nottingham of a greater reality. You know, this whole series, we're looking at unseen reality, lifting our eyes, this great apocalypse, the great unveiling of seeing things as they truly are. He's doing that in this letter. He's reminding the church, actually, of what their true opposition is. He's reminding them about himself, but he's also, in this passage, drawing attention to the opposition. Because they think it's Rome. They think it's this Jewish sect. That's their opposition. But we see very clearly that Jesus says it's Satan that's throwing you in prison. It's not just human and religious pressure that they're experiencing. Daryl Johnson puts it like this. Pressure equals threatened political, plus hostile religious, plus spiritual forces manipulating both. And so too for us, he says, behind the growing moral darkness is the prince of darkness. Behind the escalating violence is the lord of violence. It's really important for us to grasp. It was important for them and it's important for us to grasp that any spiritual attack from Satan is actually not primarily aimed at us. It is aimed at Jesus. He doesn't actually, Satan doesn't care about you or me. He just cares about Jesus. He hates Jesus, but he can't touch him because Jesus has defeated him. So the only thing he can touch is the thing that Jesus loves most, his church. He attacks the church to test it's faithfulness to Jesus. And in this text, we read that they will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, this might seem weirdly specific. It's not actually referring to 10 literal days. See, in the Bible, you have this sort of idea of completeness. The number, numbers mean something, and divine completeness is the number seven. Human completeness is the number 10. So there's this idea here that they will be tested in every possible human way. The full spectrum of human completeness, they will be tested in a completely human way. It might speak to the lengths of suffering that they will have to go to for this church. 
But it also does speak to a limit. It is not suffering to the extent that you cannot see past it in the heavenly realm. There is a limit. It will come to an end. Remember that he is the first and the last. Our lives, their lives are bookended by Christ, the resurrected Christ. We are resurrection people. He says in the passage, Jesus says, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. He doesn't promise that they won't die, but he does promise eternal life. I wonder if you've ever thought about this idea of a second death. By this second death, Jesus is, is referring to the idea of being eternally separated from the presence of God. That's the second death. And by saying that they won't have to experience that, he's promising them eternal life with him. And the thought of that gives strength in the midst of this crushing pressure. It's a future hope. And my word, I'm thankful for it. I'm sure they were thankful for that future hope. But there's also a present hope. Because the resurrected Jesus is alive and reigning in the church through the Holy Spirit. He's present. I mean, this letter in and of itself, I mean, just think about, sometimes when we're in the midst of the text, we can forget what we're actually reading. This letter was given to an exiled Christian on an island through a revelation in the moment that he then wrote down and got somehow to these churches. That's a miracle. If you can do it for the church in Smyrna, you can do it for us. The presence of Jesus is a future hope, but it's also a present hope. The Holy Spirit can be with us in the midst of it all. You only have to read, you know, some stories of the saints. Richard Wormbrandt, Corrie ten Boom, go and read The Heavenly Man. You'll see that these pictures of the resurrected Jesus coming to people in the midst of their absolute worst suffering, getting them through. It doesn't need to look like being on death row to experience that kind of presence of God helping you through when the cost feels unbearable. We can see evidence of this kingdom breaking through now in healing and deliverance. So many ways that he comes and is present to us in the midst of it all. If you are faithful to me, even when you're facing death, just as I have done for you, I will give you the crown of life. This crown of life is a direct contrast to the, the laurel crowns that they would have experienced in the sort of Olympic game uh, theater of their lives in Smyrna. But this crown doesn't waste away like laurel leaves. It is golden. It's beautiful, it's majestic, it's eternal. It is the ultimate prize for those who are in Christ. It's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus in the way that the Church of Smyrna did. But what about all the things that you don't see? The eternal things that won't pass away. Jesus is reminding them of that and to us. You see, in the... In the earthly sense, coming back to my grandparents, their, the end of their lives was sad. It was painful. It was filled with suffering. Their love for each other cost them a lot. 
And there wasn't honestly much coming back from that in grief that my granddad experienced before this side of heaven. But my mum had a sort of an unveiling moment of her own. Just after my granddad died in the pandemic, she had a dream. The Lord gave her a dream. And in this dream, you can picture the scene. She was um, sort of watching on in this sort of room filled with various members of my sort of family history. Um, my grandparents were in this room, sort of like a tea room sort of vibe, social setting. And my granddad was sort of busying himself, fussing around, sort of fussing over people. Have you got enough to eat? Is everything all right? Have you got a seat? Is that okay? Sort of honestly the role that I remember my grandma playing when she was alive. And yet in this dream, my mum just remembers seeing her sat in this seat with a serene look on her face, completely at peace. She's very different to the way she was on earth, just serenely sitting, looking lovingly on to my granddad. Looking on as if to say, it's all right, Clive. It's all right. You're okay here. Reassuring him, almost settling him in to where they had found themselves to be. I thanked God that he'd given my mum that dream, that picture of life beyond what we can see in the earthly sense. It doesn't all make sense. The healing might not happen now. You might experience death with all of its pain and sadness. Suffering doesn't always end on earth. We all know that. But it will end. You might not be healed now, but you will be healed. And what about now? Well, the word Smyrna actually means, in Ionic Greek, it actually means myrrh. That myrrh that you know about from the Christmas story. Myrrh is a fragrant um, perfume. It's used in, for, for its perfume, and, um, but also for medicine and all sorts. It's, fab, it's an amazing thing. It, Smyrna was a chief exporter of myrrh. And the thing about myrrh is that it's, a, it's an incredible substance, but in order to get it, you have to scrape it. You have to put pressure on it to get it out of the tree. That's the only way you harvest it. You have to repeatedly wound it through thlipsis. As Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians 2, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And maybe this is what Jesus meant when he called the church rich, even though they clearly lived in poverty on the margins of society. You see, Smyrna is the only church out of all seven of these letters that is still in existence today. It's the only one that is still a thriving center of worship. Their legacy was one that went way beyond their own persecution and suffering. And they were a sweet-smelling fragrance, crushed, beaten down, but not destroyed. 